millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So hi, Stephen Glover. Welcome to the Press Gazette uh, Journalism Matters podcast. Thank you. Um, great to have you on. Um, founder of The Independent, uh, economist for Daily Mail, and on to talk about your uh, fantastic novel. It's your first novel, is it? It's my first novel, yeah. yeah. Splash, um, which um, consciously or not, or unconsciously, I don't know, seems to me like a sort of sequel to Scoop, uh, updated for the uh, era of um, clickbait online journalism and the rather more desperate age we live in now compared to uh, uh, the, the age that uh, War was writing about. I mean, is that is that a fair description, or, or what, what, what kind of inspired it? Um, I don't think it was inspired by Scoop, but I mean, Scoop's always been one of my favourite novels, although I haven't read it for a long time, actually, until, until recently, after, after um, this was finished. Um, yeah, I guess it's got... I mean, obviously, it's a fantastically funny and brilliant novel, so in a way, it's it, it's uh, presumptuous to mention them in the same breath. But um, I guess that... Um, I mean, one difference is... I was amazed in rereading Scoop, which I actually only read, re, re, re-read last week, just how much... Um, how, how relentlessly uh, war satirises all journalists. It doesn't matter who they are, whether they're upmarket journalists or, or tabloid journalists. And... Uh, the, the the satire is relentless. Uh, I met the foreign editor, Mr. Salter. He's a guy who say, says, uh, up to Point Lord Copper, can't even find Reykjavik on the map. And uh, uh, the, the foreign correspondents in, in, in Africa, where William Boot goes, um, are all either um, untrustworthy or um, unpleasant or... There, there isn't really, there isn't really a decent, a decent journalist mm. in in the whole of, in, in the whole of Scoop, and this doesn't stop journalists loving Scoop. <laughs> uh, interestingly, uh, but it's not just that the journalists are, are all in some way um, uh, unrespectable unres- un, un, uh, figures in War's view. It's that the whole process of journalism in War's view seems to be um, kind of worthless. He, I mean, although although he, he you know he wrote happily for the, for the Daily Mail and, and other newspapers when they paid him well. I don't think he really liked journalism. I don't think he really, I don't think he thought that journalism was anything worth worth defending. And I guess I take a slightly different view. Yeah, I mean, um, it's you know really enjoyable. I, I, I think it compares compares well. It's a similar in a similar sort of vein to, to Scoop, and I think it compares compares well when reading it. Um, yeah, and the and the it's quite affectionate, isn't it? The uh, the journalists are uh, heroes, really, aren't they? Even the kind of. Uh, 
rather sadistic um, deputy editor is kind of like, you know, he's a good journalist anyway. And then... Yeah, he's a good journalist anyway. Um, I mean, he's a pretty uh, unpleasant character. You wouldn't want to get the wrong side of him. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a pompous columnist and um, called Adam Pride, and there's, and the hero um, Sam Blunt is a, uh, you know, a far from admirable figure. It's quite difficult to like him. You know, he's always drinking and uh, he's a misogynist. Um, but basically, his heart is in the right place, and what he has got in his favour is that he's brave and he wants, he wants to find out the truth of things, and. Um, um, you know, journalism needs people like that. I mean, to, to what extent is it kind of um, uh, inspired by uh, real events, as it were, or real real things? It's certainly not inspired by real events. I mean, it's a kind of fantasy. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a kind of caper, uh, which is on kind of, uh, in a way, an unrealistic level, um, in that sense, like Scoop, I guess. But... Um, I think I can honestly say that none of the characters are, are based upon any single character. Um, that really is the case. As for the newspapers, I mean, for sort of simplicity, for, for the sake of simplicity, there are only four papers mentioned here, whereas um, I can't remember how many daily papers there are, 10, 11. Um, so there are only four here. There's the, the, the Bugle, where our hero works, and around which the action turns. There's the Daily Dazzle, which is a sort of down market paper. There's the, there's the Chronicle, which is a kind of upmarket paper, and there's the Financial Gazette, which kind of speaks for itself. And all those papers, I guess, have a kind of a, amalgam of, 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 other, of other papers in them, but they're not based upon any, 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 uh, any existing paper. And how do you sort of find the process of writing a novel after so much uh, journalism, so much factual writing for all, all these years? Um, it was odd and strange, um, and um, I mean, I suppose the strange thing is that it's just the, the, the sheer distance of it. I mean, it's not, it's a, I think it's about 70,000 words, which is what, um, I guess about sort of 70 columns or something, and, it's, and, and you've got to pace yourself differently, and of course you've got to learn an awful lot, and, you know, it's, it didn't just kind of drop out of the sky into the book, it was, you know, it had to be improved and edited and so forth. But um, you know, I've always been interested in novels, so I guess it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't that bizarre. Mm. So you were still writing the um, weekly column for for the Daily Mail, yeah, and monthly media column for the Oldie. That's right, yeah. Um, I think you might be the last regular national press media commentator left. I can't think of any else. But Greenslade occasionally writes. Uh, there's, uh, there's, there's Ian Burrell writes a column in, uh, in I. Of course, yeah. Um, but there are, re, people who write about the media have become rather an endangered uh, yeah, species it's, in the national Yeah, it's true. Press. They've gone out. Well, it's been also Peter Preston in The Observer. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they, they have kind of gone out of fashion. I mean, I think media commentators, because they have inevitably write about other paper, cause editors a lot of grief. Mm. And editors get uh, if if, a, if a, an editor um, is responsible for a media columnist, he's going to get criticised by other proprietors and other editors and other columnists because you know, if you write a media column, you're bound to you're bound to criticise somebody at some stage. And and editors and proprietors don't um, necessarily like that. I think that's one factor, which is which is. I mean, I remember the Roy Greenslade. Um, this is probably largely forgotten, but at some stage back in about 2003, 2004, 
after Madame McClellan became chief executive of the Telegraph. I think he started writing media column for the Telegraph mm-hmm. briefly, but it didn't work out. But I think for that reason that they that they, they didn't like um, the kind of blowback which you get um, from having a media columnist on payroll. I think you had a similar experience as well, didn't you? The Spectator with Boris Johnson at one stage? Yeah, I wrote a media column for The Spectator, I've got a very good memory, yeah. for about, uh, about nine years, actually. And then, um, I mean, uh, yeah, at, at the end, uh, he wouldn't publish something which I'd written about The Telegraph. And um, it was only a tiny little item, but it was quite innocuous. And the way these things can blow up. And I said, well, if you won't publish it, I'll resign. So I resigned. Um, probably, you know, in retrospect, stupidly, uh, because the Spectator was a great place to write. But that, that was the reason he... he um, because the Spectator, of course, then as now, was owned by the Telegraph. So the, the book paints are rather... Well, not bleak, but fairly realistic portrayal. Okay, I'd say of the current national press and the fact that the the, the paper the main pro- protagonist works for is about to lose money. It's about to be sold to some uh, Chinese billionaire. Yeah. And um, what, what do you make of the current scene? Are you, as somebody who's obviously been in journalism a long time, are you concerned about the future of um, newspapers and the future of journalism? Yeah, I, I, I am. I am concerned, and, and, and it is certainly. A, it is certainly a, the book is about um, a once incredibly successful paper, which is which is struggling in the in the digital world. Um, I mean, I, I guess I, I sort of exist on two levels. I have one kind of. I'm generally, generally quite an optimistic person, and you know, in, in a in a ever ever more complicated world where politicians and and, and, and people working with the government aren't getting any more honest, you would think you have as much um, need as ever for, for a powerful um, press which can hold people um, to account and so on. And there's that need there and the, the readers want it. It's just a question of the form it will come in and whether, whether in the digital world, um, whether, whether the digital will be able to deliver journalism of the kind of quality that we've been used to having for the last... I don't know, 50 or 100 years. And obviously the, the jury's out on that. Uh, readers have a... We know this, that readers have a completely different attitude uh, towards a lot of what they read online. And uh, the idea of the old, you know, one one or two daily newspapers, which which you might take, is that's that's almost part of history. Well, that's going a bit far, but it's becoming, it's becoming part of history. And then there is a problem about whether... The digital, the digital newspapers are ever going to be able to generate enough income to support the kind of journalism which traditional newspapers have, and it's not clear that they will. Um, but having said that, you know somebody will find a way. It's just, it's just, it's just not possible at the moment for anybody to see where that way is going to be. So the paper you you co-founded, the Independent, lives on yeah. as a um, as a website. I mean. What, what do you what do you make of it make of it now compared to uh, you know what, what it was as a newspaper? Well, I mean, it's it's actually a very successful website. I think it's something like the seventh or eighth most read uh, newspaper website in, in the English speaking world, and it's I think more or less doubled its audience since the Independent closed. Um, it's 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 very successful, but um, it doesn't have an awful lot in common with the Independent, which we launched in 1986. I mean. It, you know, it hasn't got the foreign correspondence. It hasn't got the um, 
the, the, the kind of detailed home specialist uh, articles which um, which the independent used to have. Um, it's just a different thing. I mean, I remember I remember when it went when the independent closed. Remember Brian Cathcart, who's a you know, you know hacked off character, said. Um, that it, it didn't make any difference, you know. The, the independent closing—it was just just going into a new sphere, a new a new form—and that's simply not true. I mean, digital is 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 so different that it can't that it it it, it must deliver journalism in a different way. And if they were going to be profitable and if they were going to increase their audience, uh, independent online had to produce a paper which was going to be very different, not just from the Independent as it was launched in 1986, but the Independent as it was when it closed. And then uh, the... Um, obviously, it lives on in print form, in a way, with the eye. I mean, what do you make, what do you make of that? It's obviously another di- quite different thing. I think the eye is a, it was a, a, a brilliant idea. Uh, when, it, when it was launched, it was a very clever idea, um, although I think it did accelerate the decline in sales of the Independent. There's no doubt about that. It kind of cannibalised some of the sales of the Independent because it had so much of the same content and it was um, so much cheaper. Um, I think Eye is great, but again, because it is so compressed, it it um, it's quite a long way from the Independent as it was originally conceived. So I was, I was dredging through the Press Gazette archive and I looked at the... Um, something you were involved in in 2004, which was this idea that we could uh, launch um, an upmarket, uh, well, I think it was an upmarket paper called The World, yeah, uh, which was a sort of tabloid, was it? Like, like, um, like a sort of attempt at Le Monde? Yeah, well, it, whether it was going to be uh, a Le Monde type, I mean, the problem with Le Monde is, as, as the Guardian has found, <laughs> there are not many, you know, you, you have to buy your buy presses to to print Le Monde, and um, I, I think it, I think it would have been, it would have ended up as a tabloid. Actually, we, we conceived this idea, which in retrospect seems a, a mad and daft idea, but we conceived it before the Independent and the Times went tabloid, and before the before the uh, Guardian uh, emerged in the, in the kind of Le, Le, the Berlin or Le Mans shape, uh, no, we just felt we just felt at the time that there was a gap in the market. Oh, I felt you know with a few friends, um, and for for, for, a, for an upmarket uh, newspaper in a tabloid form, uh, maybe there was. But of course, I mean, even this, this was I don't know two thousand three to two thousand and four, not that long ago. But the, the 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 newspaper world has been completely transformed. And if we had raised the money, I mean, we'd, we'd actually got quite a long way. But if we had raised the money, if we, I think we can say in retrospect, it would have been pretty hard work to make it to make it succeed. Though, it, of course, it, it it was predicated on on a very low cost base, and there are newspapers. Uh, I mean, there's, there's one in Rome, in Italy, for example, which is which is surviving on a, on, a, on a pretty low circulation. Uh, it can be done, but it's more more difficult now um, in in the digital world. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. 
like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The Europeans launch, isn't it? And uh, um, The new Europeans, yeah. sorry. Um, which I guess has proved that it is possible to launch a print, uh, print newspaper even in these straightened times. Um, yeah. what, I mean, what do you make of that? I guess it's not something politically you'd have an awful huge amount. Um, no, it's got a cause. I, I, I don't um, print, look at it um, much. I mean, I've certainly seen it, so I can't really uh, make a, a sensible critique of it. But you can see you can see why it's had a limited success. I don't know. I don't know what the figures. Uh, I don't know what the bottom line is, but you can see because it has a cause, and it's a cause in which you know, some people passionately believe. So you, you know, you're involved in the launch of the Independent, which, as its name suggests, was a sort of um, kickback against the uh, sort of partisan nature, I guess, yeah. of um, Fleet Street journalism. So what have you made of the um, coverage of, of the uh, national press coverage around the campaign? Because it, it strikes me this is a, uh, a time when uh, newspapers do rather kind of uh, lean towards propaganda in in a sense, and uh, you know, you can, it's certainly true around Brexit and probably yeah. true around the election campaign as well. That's true. I mean, but but, but it was ever thus. You know, I, I don't think that there are any more. Um, uh, Inclined towards propaganda than they were in previous elections. The difference now is, of course, that they, the, the, the circulation is has fallen so much. So the Sun, which was at the time of the um, 1983 election, probably selling around four million copies, is now selling whatever it is, one point um, seven, I guess, one point seven, one point eight, and. Um, and that's, you know, as we know, true across the board. The question is whether online papers, um, whether the Sun Online, whether the Mail Online or the Independent Online or the Guardian Online, how powerful they are as propaganda vehicles. I suspect they're much less powerful uh, as, as propaganda, as political vehicles than their, their print counterparts um, because that's not what they're there to do. I mean, they're not, they're not, they're not usually about views. And columnists, uh, they're about they're about other things. So I think you know the press is as biased in one way or the other as it's ever been. It's just it's much 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 less important, and 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 social media is much more important. I, mean, I don't know what you think about it, but it struck me that the um, Corbyn's got you know excoriated criticism in nearly all the mainstream newspapers. Yeah. But polls suggest he's kind of got gradually more and more popular over the last sort of um, two months. That's true, um, and that, that, that um, I mean, and, and what is also true is that is that on the uh, television, which does remain a powerful force, he has been represented um, since the beginning of the campaign and a bit before in a somewhat different light. I mean, if you talk to Corbynistas, the Corbynistas think that the the BBC is biased against them. 
just as the, as the Daily Mail thinks that the BBC is biased against the Tories. I mean, they, they, they believe in exactly the same way. And actually, I mean, I think to some degree both, both are true, and that, that, that until quite recently, um, when he was, when he was first, first of all, when he was standing to be leader of the Labour Party, and secondly, when he was um, forced to stand again, I think he got a very, a very bad press on, on television and on the BBC, and I think that's, that's changed. And the, the BBC, like everybody else, uh, has been forced to, to take him more seriously. And your, I mean, your paper, the Daily Mail, I guess, is, you know, in, inspires you know, utter hatred, doesn't it, from the Corbynistas and, peop- and people on the left, and uh, things like the Enemies of the People yes. front page, and, um, and some of the, um, you know, it was more full fright uh, coverage. Uh, that you know, which obviously sways towards the right. I mean, do you? How, what do you? What do you? How would you respond to that in terms of people that say that the, the you know the Daily Mail's sort of a propaganda sheet for the, for uh, you know Theresa May or, or whatever? I'd respond by saying it's just one newspaper, and um, I mean the Daily Mail, like like all other papers, its circulation has, has has been declining. I think there are 46 million adults in this country who can vote in the general election, and the Daily Mail readership is about um, about three and a half million as readership as opposed to its circulation. Mm-hmm. So that's that, that's something like I don't know, it's between seven and eight percent. So between seven and eight percent of the entire adult population reads the Daily Mail. You would think to hear the criticism of the Daily Mail and to read the criticism of the Daily Mail in, in the left-wing press, that the Daily Mail was single-handedly responsible for Brexit. And that the, the, the Daily Mail had shaped Brexit, and that without the Daily Mail, Brexit wouldn't have happened. I think that's really um, pretty unlikely. I think that, that most uh, Daily, Daily Mail readers were probably going to vote uh, Brexit in the first place. So uh, a majority of, um, of a minority were there in, were. were, were almost certainly inclined to vote Brexit. I'm not saying that the mail didn't make some difference at the, at the margins, but it is accorded by its enemies um, a, a much, much bigger um, role, a, mu- a much more powerful role uh, that is actually borne out by the facts. And um, and this hatred of the Daily Mail, which you referred to, which is not universal, it's got, you know, it's got its supporters and admirers, and it is, is, I believe, a very good newspaper. But this hatred of the Daily Mail has magnified enormously since Brexit. Um, I mean, gone up by sort of tenfold. I mean, Daily Mail has never been loved in in in, in some left wing circles, uh, but. Um, it's now uh, the, 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 the detestation for the mail has, has risen enormously, and I would argue uh, that it is based upon a misconception of the mail's power. And I don't know, did you read the um, recent book about the mail, Mail Men? I did read it, yes. Uh, so, um, what did you make of that uh, kind of uh, that depiction of that it was a sort of. Um, uh, some people would probably describe it as a hatchet job, but it was, fair, it was fairly uh, critical, wasn't it, of the kind of culture of the paper, this sort of idea that it's... Uh... Yes. I actually thought, I actually reviewed it for the spectator. I didn't think it was a hatchet job. Um, uh, but uh, it was certainly critical of some figures. And um, and it was it, and it was certainly more critical of the modern mail than it was, say, of, of, of Northcliffe's mail, because it was it purported to be a history of the whole Daily Mail. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just about the... I mean, only, only the maybe the last half was about the mail since David English took over in ni- 1971. Uh, 
I mean, yeah, I mean, people have tended to read in that what they wanted to, and, and critics of them, I mean, there have been multiple pieces in, in various newspapers uh, by people who have just seen... Um, all, all, all seen the, the confirmation of all the dark things they think about the male. I must say, I don't, I, I don't um, recognise a lot of. Uh, I mean, the male, the male is um, quite a. Um, uh, it seems to me, from uh, you know, having written a column there, I mean, I'm not, I'm not on the staff, and I, I don't, you know, I don't go there all the time. But although, although it's a tough place, and although um, you know people do get shouted at. You have to observe that it keeps its staff, and people mm-hmm. stay there, mm-hmm. um, and they stay there because they, on the whole, well treated, and because they think they're working for a, a, a highly professional newspaper which they respect, and that didn't, that certainly, that certainly doesn't come across in, in, in a lot of a lot of the criticisms of the mail they talk about. And people don't have to work for the mail if they think that they're, you know, not, they're not obliged to. But people do tend to, people who work there tend to stay there. So I'm trying to, I, I should work this out. How long have you been writing, writing your column now, Fidea? God, far too long. Um, uh, since about 1999, uh, 1998, perhaps, yeah. The thing about columnists is quite, quite a lot of journalists have got a few you know, good columns in them. Yes. But, uh, the, uh, it's not many people can you know, knock, them out, knock them out week in, week out, uh, over, over a sustained period. Uh, well, of course, you come, back, you come back to the same column. I mean, <laughs> I mean you, know, you know, but... Yeah, it's true. Stamina is, is, is I suppose, if, you, if, you, if you're trying to work out what, what you need as a columnist, I suppose just the ability to go on doing it week in, week out is, is probably just, you know, just about the most important thing. And how, how do you approach it? And how do you, uh, and how, and how do you sort of go about keeping, keeping it fresh and keeping that kind of uh, energy level up and, and, the, and the necessary level of kind of, well, if not outrage, but, you know, enthusiasm, I guess? Yeah. I just try. I just try as hard as I can every time I do it. You know, because if you don't try, if you if you let your energy levels go down, or if you think if you get bored with it, I mean, the worst possible thing a column can ever, ever columnist can ever do is to show boredom with the subject he's writing about. Because if he feels bored, then why on earth should readers waste their time reading? And so um, I think it's very important to keep your energy levels up, to keep your interest up, and um, and and not to get complacent. Um, that, those those are those are the dangerous things. And do you get um, much? Um, I'm not sure whether you're on you're not on social media, are you? You're on Twitter? I don't know. No, I don't know Twitter. No. The um, but do you get do you get much kind of hatred or uh, or you know or, or, or praise back? I mean, there's the thing that columnists kind of get nowadays is they get these uh, kind of loony commenters that bombard them with thousands of emails. And if you're on Twitter, you get a lot of horrendous abuse. Well, you, you get horrendous abuse, uh, which is a totally good reason for not doing Twitter. <laughs> um, yeah, you read. I mean, uh, most co- most of my friends who are columnists no longer read, and I, I no longer read. Well, nine times out of ten, I no longer read the postings below yeah. below. Yeah. Because um, uh, one one doesn't really learn much from them. I mean, either either either, either people say what a fantastic column, uh, completely agree with you, or they say what a complete and utter arsehole you are, and um, you know you can only read so much of that sort of stuff. <laughs> so um, I'm not quite sure why why, why newspapers. We were talking about, obviously about online at the moment. I'm not quite sure why newspapers print that stuff, um, because. But I guess you know it allows people to let off steam, and they quite often argue amongst themselves. Actually, they quite often. If you, if you've, I mean, as I said, I don't. I hardly ever read them now. But if you if you look at those postings, quite often the column itself becomes irrelevant, and they start and they start sort of picking off each other and and, and having rows amongst <laughs> themselves, and the, con- the the actual column is completely forgotten about. 
Uh, what about the sort of email feedback? Do you, do you, do you see much of that? Or? People send emails, but quite infrequently. And, of course, people still send letters, um, but they're fewer than they used to be. Yeah. Uh, but, um, I mean, not everybody, not everybody, not everybody, uh, uh, you know, uh, sends off emails. So, yeah, we still get letters and, and, and some emails. So, in the book, um, sort of bring it back to the book, it, there's not a huge amount of... Uh, Talk about sort of social media and and Twitter in it. I guess because I guess because the, the hero is a journalist of a slightly uh, earlier vintage, isn't he? So he he's he's more old school, isn't he? He's got his shorthand and he's got shorthand and he he deprecates the fact that that younger journalists use their uh, iPhones to uh, at press conferences you know, or when they interview when they interview it. And we've got to that bit when when they interview journalists that uh, they don't use shorthand. But he's yeah he's an, he's a I mean he's not that old. I mean he's in his in his early forties, but he's but he's got those skills. Um, the, the, the digital world is certainly still certainly very much meant to be there. Um, but I don't I just I I think that there, there is some tweeting towards the end. Um, there is some tweeting, but the but the but, uh, and, uh, but the, 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 the protagonist uh, Sam Blunt, the main character, uh, the, the guy who, who's good at shorthand, um, who's an old-fashioned r- reporter. Um, yeah, he, he he's he's quite good on the computer. He's good, he's good good at good at he does a lot of research on the computer. He he uses his, his smartphone a lot, but no, he's not into Twitter. It's perfectly true. And as the title suggests, I guess it's the idea about the. Um Romanticism of the f- splash of the front page is still there, isn't it, for journalists and even for the kind of um, the kind of c- c- cynical older hack who's, who's on his way out. The idea of getting that one last great front page is the thing that drives him and even makes him kind of uh, you know cut down on his drinking or whatever. Yeah. I mean, um, do you think uh, we could you could write a sequel, <laughs> one, which which uh, has the same romanticism about the uh, having the top story on the uh, website or? <laughs> Uh, well, it's not. A, it's not, not. I mean, the digital world, although, because you know, I read, I read online stuff, obviously, but it's not a world I understand. You know, in, in the same way, because I've been brought up in the in the old print world. Um, so, although there is quite a lot of the novel which is set in 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 in, in, the, in Bugle Online rather than the Daily Bugle, um, I can't. I can't really imagine. I mean, I, I can't imagine writing a, a, a book about the, you know, to be honest, not a, not about the romanticism of of online newspapers. But maybe they have it, you know. And, and I'm just missing something. Maybe somebody else will come along and write a, a book about how wonderful they are. And it may be that I'm, you know, being um, stick in the mud and small C conservative, and that I don't see the the joys and strengths and uh, advantages of the of digital online newspapers. As, as clearly as I should do. I'm perfectly happy to, to, to admit that possibility. And this is all final question, really, which I often ask people. How do you see the future of the, um, of the industry now? I mean, sort of, um, we've not had that many closures, have we? The independent closed, but it kind of lived on a certain, in a yeah. strange sort of way. So, um, how do you see the, 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 the future of uh, Fleet Street? Um, do, do you see a kind of more positive future? or I don't see any newspaper closing imminently. Um, I think there will be closures along the line. Along the lines, it's, it's, one shouldn't really sort of mention titles, but I think they will be. You know, five to ten years, one, one, one or two titles will probably close. I think what we'll see until that happens is the gradual contraction of, of, of newspapers. They have fewer and fewer resources and smaller newsrooms, but they keep going. 
and actually, you know, if you if you walk if you know if you walked out of here and you looked look at all the newspapers on a, on a, a, outside a news agent um, and, and picked up them, went off and read them for two hours in a, in a cafe, you'd think they were pretty good, um, and, and they are they do remarkably well uh, with the resources they've got. But I think if you were to compare them with what they had. Uh, 25, 30 years ago, if you could make a comparison, you would see the comparison. And, and obviously, one obvious area where the, where this comparison is is the, is the decline of foreign news because foreign news is 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 so expensive. And that's one point I make in in the book. You know, the Sam Sam used to be a young sort of fireman, you know, going off to Africa all the time. Um, now the Daily Bugle can't afford to send him abroad, and he, he, he thinks about those days, and he remembers that the Daily Bugle, I can't remember the exact figures I, I quote, but there's a, uh, 20 years ago or 25 years ago it had 10 foreign correspondents, and 50 years ago it had 20. And that is, of course, true of uh, not just the, the middle market press, but much of the press, with some exceptions like the FT, who managed to maintain large um, uh, number of foreign foreign correspondents. But the decline of foreign news is a most extraordinary thing, um, in a way. I mean, we can see why it's happened, because of lack of resources. But, you know, we live in a... We live in a more... In a, we're told we live in a more global world where we should know more about what we're doing. And yet, that global world is reported a lot less than it was 50 years ago when we, we, we thought we were much more insular. Yeah, it's true. People are much more... Interesting foreign news, aren't they? The American election and the French, French be, election yeah, and, yeah. The, and all the other things that are going on. Yeah, and of course those big, those big things are covered. I mean, what isn't covered is the sort of second, third rank foreign story. You know, the I don't know the election in Poland or or Portugal or, or a coup in some African country, which would have you know when I, when I joined the Telegraph in '78, you know, if, the, if there was a coup in a former British colony, immediately you know people would flood off and and report it. But um, now I could you know. It could happen and, and be scarcely noticed. That's very true. Well, look, thanks very much for coming in. It's a pleasure. Uh, and uh, I've you know, thoroughly enjoyed the book, and uh, I, hope it's, I hope it's a big success. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.